Wax on, right hand. Wax off, left hand. Wax on, wax off. Breathe in through nose, out the mouth. Wax on, wax off. Don't forget to breathe. Very important. Wax on, wax off. Wax on. Coordinated strike. Welcome to Coordinated Strike. As always, I'm your host, Joe, and today we have something just a little different. I went to Twitter and asked what you guys wanted to hear about, and one of my old buddies and uh, a longtime game designer for a variety of companies, uh, Justin Gibbs, went ahead and gave me this gem. And so I'm going to go ahead and take it, run with it, in the context of our show. And that is, he wants to know about the shift in wargaming trends over the last 30 years. And why they happened. Big example being the acceptance of pre-measuring, alternating activations, versus I go, you go, etc. So I'm very excited to talk a little bit of gaming history with you, talk about how we got to modern game design, and talk about how modern game design and modern game design conventions are what fuel the other side. So sit back, strap in, and listen. But first, a word from our sponsors. counter on this ball so try to beat your very best score see if you can jump a whole lot more skip it skip it come on everybody skip it roaring good fun from tiger toy so i want to take you back to the very primordial ooze of wargaming and that is actually uh, H.G. Wells. You may know him from such works as, uh, you know, The Time Machine, War of the Worlds, and the lesser known but monumentally important Little Wars. So Little Wars is one of the first codified hobby board, hobby miniatures games that was ever created. Um, essentially... He created this rule set that him and his buddy could play in their backyard uh, with a bunch of their children's toy soldiers. And they had a quite nice little rule set. You can actually find this on Amazon today. It is still uh, in electronic print. So it is available for you to find. It should not be overly difficult. I, I would suggest anybody that is interested in the history of miniatures gaming to kind of start here, because it's the first time that we have an amateur attempt at rule set design that is really widely publicized and thought about. And it sort of brings into the game, it brings into, brings into focus some things that game designers, when talking about miniatures games, have had at the forefront of their mind for years, uh, namely... How do different weapons react in the game? Uh, what are the ranges? What is, what is an acceptable range? How do you balance this? What is your randomization mechanic? Uh, is morale going to be part of your game? What effect does it have? How closely are you going to be simulating a battlefield as opposed to 
how closely are or how fun are you trying to make your game? Not to say that pure simulation isn't fun because there is a lot of joy in a more uh, simulated environment, but there are some things that we give up if we want to have a quicker experience or an experience that's not bogged down in some of the hardcore logistics that actual warfare is really all about. You know, do we want to spend time thinking about feeding and arming these people or arming these soldiers in battle, or are we just going to be really looking at the fact that this battle is going to take place over a time when we assume when we for benefit of the game assume that the logistical portions for this battle have already been worked out and we are not part of that logistical part. We are not part of the logistics of that. Uh, you know, you're going to figure out how you do damage. You're going to figure out all of these little bits that kind of make up a war game. And Little Wars is sort of the first time we see these things all coalesce into a unified system that was tweaked throughout its life and was definitely a joy for the author to play uh, with one of his close friends who had been wounded. So it is, it's a really cool story. You should check out Little Wars. And that kind of brings me to the start of this. So we're going to talk about trends in the last 30 years. This is a game that's over 100 years old. But let's talk about the last 30 years. And in order to understand the last 30 years, we have to understand what games and companies shaped that 30-year history. Because in order to understand the landscape, in order to understand the trending, we have to understand where it all kind of started. And mainstream, for lack of a better term, uh, hobby miniatures board games really starts in the last 30 years with Games Workshop, Citadel Miniatures, and the creation of Warhammer Fantasy and Rogue Trader, later turned into 40K. So these rule sets were, the first one being Warhammer Fantasy, is the first time you see large block formation that is not historically driven. So historicals existed, and, and they've existed long ago. Little Wars is actually a historical-based game. So it allows you to play armies that were present in real life in a way that you can mimic battles or recreate them uh, at, at scale. The Warhammer Fantasy was a way for players who had amassed a large amount of Dungeons & Dragons miniatures to play those large collections against each other in more of a war game in a fantastical setting so that you could bring your crazy player character heroes to bear against large swaths of enemy troops. And so Warhammer Fantasy was born. So you have really powerful characters, you have really mundane rank-and-file troops that are mostly there to kind of gum up the works, be really impressive on the battlefield, and then the hero is the one that comes through, smashes these things, and tries to take the day and routes the opponent. Well, some of the things that you find in these early Warhammer rule sets is the bulk of the game, the bulk of what they're trying to do is give you a larger-scale experience of what you're already seeing on your D&D table. You're getting to hero smash through large portions of the enemy army. So there was a tendency in those rule sets 
to really make hero and hero creation the focus of the game with the larger blocks being secondary. And what it turns out is the consumer base was actually looking for a little bit more of the strategy behind the big blocks of infantry as opposed to the heroes just coming in and smashing everything. And so in future editions, you'll see characters still be a big part of the game, but not to the extent that they are in the early portions of the game. Uh, you'll, see, you'll see it throughout editions that that kind, of, that kind of ebbs and flows. But one of the things that GW really kind of coalesces around is making the game as cinematic as possible and enjoyable to look at on the table and to give you big moments that are memorable. And their rule sets are really have really, even from the beginning, been built around this kind of concept. They want you to do cool things on the table. They want the rules to facilitate those cool things happening on the table so that you have a memorable experience over some beers with a friend while you play in a home, the basement, those type of things. So some of the conventions of those games and some of the things that are, are taken for granted now and are considered canon of war games, if you're going to do a large-scale war game, you're going to put it on a 6x4 table, and you're going to do that because that is how it is done, because that is how we've done it for 30-plus years. But have you stopped to ask why? Well, one of the reasons that 6x4 was taken as the standard table is that in the UK in the mid 80s this was a standard dining room table size uh, that was available for a majority of middle income households so they figured if you put it on a six by four most people because they're going to play at home because remember the club scenes at this point weren't really a reality yet for young men playing war games because it just wasn't a thing yet. So they made the conscious decision, because this is the average size of a table in the household, that this is what we are going to make our game landscape be, so that it is very easy for somebody to play on a surface that they have available in their house. So then you'll ask, okay, what is the best randomizer? Obviously it's dice. Everybody uses dice. Well, there's a lot of design around randomization, and you can use nearly anything as a randomizer. Dice are easy because people like to roll dice, but the real reason, and this has actually come up in interviews, and I believe Rick Priestley is the one that kind of let this out of the bag, is one of the mandates from GW at the time when, this, when Rogue Trader was created is they wanted a game that utilized d6s because they were available in everyone's copy of monopoly so in other words they were very familiar and around the house for somebody to pick up have and play without causing additional expense or causing additional issue for somebody to get they were an easy component for somebody to already have and therefore would necessitate gw providing them in the product when it launched. They would be familiar. They would be easy. It would be a player accommodation. So both of these things we talked about, the 4x6 table and the D6s that kind of dominate early game design for the first 30 years, the, the early trends in those designs, 
are about player accommodation. It's about accommodation of building your market, making it easy for your customer, your potential customer, to take this on and start doing this brand new thing for for them as a hobby. So that's kind of a that's kind of a cool thing when we talk about modern game design and we talk about accommodations. Because accommodation really has been there from the start. It just takes a little bit different forms when you're building a hobby as opposed to coming in with a brand new product. So that's one of the things we're going to talk about here tonight. So some of the other bits with these rule sets uh, that kind of dominated was the idea that the range in the game was going to be defined, but you were going to have to guess and show your skill as a commander to provide that mystery, provide essentially a, for lack of a better term, fog of war to the battle without having to add additional mechanics. And that's really the mechanics of non-pre-measuring. When you were not allowed to pre-measure, the, the prevailing thought, the prevailing idea was this is how you could differentiate the game a little bit. You could make the game about the mistakes that the players would make in these moments. Um, you, would, you would try and line everything up, the opponent would guess, and then they would charge, and if they were in, it was an amazing moment. They were, you know, it was a, one of those crazy things for your opponent. And then the shooting, or you, they were within range, and you found out they were within in range, and you could go ahead and throw your, you know, throw your javelins and shoot your arrows and shoot your machine guns, depending on what system you were playing, and everything was good. And then you could, you know, charge in and destroy the enemy and, and bust their flank because they had thought that you were out of charge range, but indeed you were not. And it makes for a big cinematic moment in the intention of the rule set. In practice, what it meant was there became an artificial barrier in the game to people that weren't playing miniatures games before. There became a skill that you needed to Develop, And this isn't necessarily a bad thing. This is just something that was a reality of game design not that long ago uh, in the miniatures game space. The expectation was that in order for your game to be quote-unquote competitive, to be taken seriously, you did not allow pre-measuring. Pre-measurement was associated with not being very skilled, not being a competitive game. A competitive game was about the mistakes and about learning how to measure with your eye to guesstimate ranges. And if you could do that, if you could do that well, you had an advantage. And that advantage was something that you got from skill at playing the game. There was a skill to it. <coughs> Ask your old timers at your shops about the skill of play of the skill of measuring when you didn't have pre-measurement. There are points of pride for a lot of people. Um, you had people in the trades that were very much upset when this was taken away in the rule sets. And when it first came out that pre-measurement was going away, and when some rule sets came out and stated that they were going to remove it, there were riots, essentially, within game communities. There was a big divide for a lot of players.
And it didn't happen all at once. There were starts and rumblings of pre-measurement in other systems. So some of the other systems that I want to talk to you about is War Machine and its sister hordes. So these games really mark the first major innovative point in a game system that is still around and sustainable today. Now there were others we could talk about ET43, we could talk about <coughs> Confrontation, and Confrontation being the first major challenger that had limited success uh, and had a, had a bit of a success in the fantasy realm. It was the first game that was not fantasy to, to be taken seriously, at least for the, the brief bit of time that it shone brightly before the company that owned it made some terrifying decisions and shot it down the drain. Um, AT-43, a sci-fi version, again, um, made some very interesting decisions on its models. And we're going to talk about some of those decisions in a little bit. But I want to get back to War Machine and Hordes and kind of give context to what has become the, long, the longest-running competitor for the miniatures marketplace outside of the behemoth that is GW. So War Machine and Hordes, in its first edition and even in its second edition, did not have pre-measurement. However, it did have points in the game where you were allowed to check certain measurements throughout the game. Uh, most of these were around your caster's control range. So the control range, for those that don't know, is a stat, or is, a, is basically two times the focus of your, of your war caster or war lock. Your war noun, essentially. And so what this was was a range in which you could cast spells. It was a range in which your beasts or jacks were functional and you could allocate focus or drain fury from them. And this was a measurement you always had access to. You could measure this on your opponent's turn. You could measure this on your turn. And what it lets you do, essentially, was weaponize it you could get a gauge of what a certain number of inches were on the table, and you could see if things were in. So you were pre-measuring without pre-measuring. And you were able to use some of those skills that you had before and ref refine it even further because you weren't guessing. And this was kind of a revolution in miniatures war game. It was a revolution around pre-measurement. It was the first time that a pre-measurement system was accepted because it wasn't all the time. You could still fail. There were still punishments for failing, but there were ways where you could check certain things by position. And so your decisions, your decisions to position a caster and to be able to measure your control range and then no other distances, just because some things you could also pre-measure, i.e. Uh, three inches from an objective, a few other things that, that came in throughout later sets, later bits in the rule set of Mark II and Mark I, that let you have a full understanding of what you could and couldn't do. 
still meant that you would have instances where you utterly failed because you either didn't have time to measure or you didn't have full, uh, you know, you didn't have perfect knowledge of the battlefield. And so with that perfect knowledge meant mistakes, that fog of war, the whole point of the initial mechanics. And so one of the things that kind of comes about as well is you get this little upstart game company called Weird Miniatures, and Weird Miniatures does the same thing that War Machine does. Uh, Weird Miniatures comes and says, we are not uh, allowing pre-measurement all the time, but there are certain things you'll be able to measure all the time. So you won't have <coughs> true knowledge of the battlefield. You'll have partial knowledge, and you can weaponize that partial knowledge. So... That's sort of the landscape for a number of years, is you have either purely no pre-measurement or you have partial pre-measurement that is not complete and you have to do a little bit of math to, to fully weaponize things. And so there is this inbuilt skill barrier to the game, an artificial skill barrier around uh, pre-measurement. And... What it creates is sort of a, an artificial sense in the hobby that this is just kind of how it should be and, and how it will be going forward for a while. And then GW releases an odd product. GW creates a table. And the table they create is made out of six two-by-two two segments. And these two-by-two two segments locked together to form the Realms of Battle table. Now, these segments fairly clearly had seams, and you could not get rid of those seams uh, very easily at all. So because of this, on these tables, in a game that you can't pre-measure, you have near-perfect knowledge of how far something is, simply because you know how far the deployment zone is, and you can see these two-by-two two segments very clearly on the boards that your local game store has probably picked up, or if you picked up one to play at your house because it's a really cool board. And all of a sudden, GW realizes that it may have a problem in its rule set. And you see a shift very shortly after Realm of Battle comes out that GW integrates full pre-measurement into its rule set. So it allows you to measure anything at any time. It allows you to measure your threat range, allows you to measure your opponent's threat range, just allows you to measure virtually anything. And the Doom Birds come out when we talk about it. And I want to take the moment to think about all of the games that have gone pre-measurement. Um, War Machine has gone pre-measurement. Uh, Hordes has gone pre-measurement. Uh, Malifaux went pre-measurement in second edition. Uh, the other side is pre-measurement. Uh, X-Wing allows for a certain degree of pre-measurement. Uh, Guild Ball allows for pre-measurement. There is a lot of pre-measurement in game systems as a whole now on the miniatures end. And I don't think it should be surprising that 
there are more miniatures games now after the advent of pre-measurement than there were before pre-measurement was the standard. I don't think it's should I don't think it should be surprising that there are more people more diverse amount of people playing games that have pre-measurement than there were before pre-measurement. And part of this is there is a lot of barrier and a lot of accommodation that is removed the instant you allow people to pre-measure. It removes a lot of mystery. It removes a lot of false skill. It removes a lot of time. And the reason I say false skill, and I'm not trying to belittle anybody that thinks that pre-measurement is a skill because it, or pre, or eyeballing distances isn't a skill. It is. However, it is a skill that not everyone can do because there are people with disabilities that do not allow them to develop this skill. They may have they may lack depth perception, all of these types of things. Additionally, you are asking somebody to come into a hobby miniatures game and then before they can get anywhere near your same level of playing the game, they have to get at the, get at the same level of pre-measurement as you do, which really has nothing to do with the game itself. It's just about eyeballing the distances, and the failure to eyeball properly punishes you as opposed to the ability to eyeball properly rewards you. And that is not how mechanics that are supportive and accommodating should work. Pre-measurement levels that playing field, and in doing so, I think it is elevated and grown the number of players that are able and willing to pick up a miniatures game. And I think it's great that the bulk of games on the market and those coming to market are pre-measure games. And so from a trend perspective, what you see is we have, we have gone away from this wanting to have this randomized element, this fog of war element, and realized that Perfect knowledge of distance is okay. It's an accommodation that we can make for the players that allows more people to play our game, play it more easily, resolve things quicker, allow for a competitive environment to resolve quickly, and not have squabbles over uh, measurement. And I think that's a great thing. I think it, it makes the games more, uh, again, more accessible for everyone to be able to try and play everyone to get a, get a chance at these. And so that is a, that is a trend in gaming that I, I definitely support, is this movement away from fog of war in a, a pre-measurement sense to add additional randomness to the game because of failed measurements and instead instill rules around the ability to get knowledge of what you're going to do, that the action is use, is doable as long as you can measure it and you are within range and you have the ability to measure before you commit to that action. And that is something I definitely support. So kind of a different uh, bit of trending is something that I'm actually on the fence on. I think certain games are much better with you go, I go, or I go, you go. 
And other games are much better with an alternating activation in which I activate a unit, you activate a unit, or some mechanism within that to allow for a few activations in a row by one player over the other, but not allowing a full sequence, not allowing a full team to activate at once. So this is where our story kind of changes. So GW started um, everything, and their, their games have virtually always been, I go with all of my units, all of my commanders, everything, and then you go after me. So my whole army does a thing, it goes through its phases, because um, the GW turn is, is built into phases, then the opponent does goes through all their phases, then we cycle to the next turn, and it, it repeats. Whereas in a game like the other side, you have an alternating activation. The reason I point out the the other side in particular is, one, this is another side podcast, and two, the other side is one of the few large-scale miniatures games uh, currently out today that utilizes an alternating activation system. Um, the other big one, War Machine, also is an I-Go-You-Go system. And there are advantages and disadvantages to both. And we're going to talk about the big, um, the big difference between the two systems is really in the reactionary alpha. So with uh, I go, you go, and your ability to activate your entire army before your opponent, the games that have those mechanics built in have to understand that there is a giant possibility that through a system of decisions by your opponent, decisions by you as to how you've positioned versus how they've positioned, the army compositions, uh, the distances involved, the terrain involved, and the sheer luck of your randomizing element, that it is entirely possible for a large portion of your your fighting force to be off the table prior to you ever getting to activate it. And this is what is known as an alpha strike. And with an alpha strike, with an alpha, there are a lot of concerns that kind of come in to you as a game designer, as, as a designer in general. It should be something that you think about a lot before you go, hey, I want to utilize, I go, you go. And I'm not saying it's bad. It's, it's not. There are ways to mitigate it. And I actually think that War Machine does a pretty good job on this. And it actually does a, a really strong job in a lot of cases of mitigation of the alpha. And the way that it does it a lot is through the distances that uh, it, can, it controls threat range fairly well for the game itself on the whole. Uh, Typically, it, uh, it has no problem with you being allowed to shoot your opponent's AD line. Uh, it does have problems with you on the first turn being able to shoot into your opponent's deployment zone. So, War Machine has, for those that don't know, War Machine has two deployment lines in its deployment. It has a standard deployment line in the, in the scenario, 
and then it has a line further up where things that have a special rule called advanced deployment get to deploy. So the bulk of an army isn't going to advance deploy. There are some special cases where a lot of the army will be able to advance deploy and others won't. But most of the time, you as the person doing the alpha are not on the first turn of the game going to be able to shoot uh, and remove the bulk of your opponent's army. In 40k, it's a much more complicated and nuanced situation. Uh, it really depends on the armies that you're matching up against. Uh, there are a lot of armies that have uh, mitigations to deployment that allow them to kind of de bring in forces later uh, and, and reinforce or deploy in, or deploy in different ways. Uh, but there is, there is still a chance for an alpha strike in in 40k and in, in a lot of the GW games, a little bit less so in uh, in Age of Sigmar, uh, a rule set that it's pretty solid on the whole. It's it's one of GW's better rule sets. Uh, I haven't played a lot of uh, the latest edition of 40k, uh, but I do know that they've done a, they've done some work to help to mitigate alpha as much as possible. But it is something that you as a designer have to understand if you have an I go you go. There is going to be a lot of things that you have no control of as a the enemy commander when when your opponent is doing all of their stuff, and so you have to ma find ways to make the opponent's turn interesting for your opponent. And this is something I actually think that most of the games that use I go you go really struggle with. So, War Machine has a little bit, a little bit easier time with letting you plan for what you're going to do on your following turn as your opponent goes through and, and does their turn. You can kind of think about what you're going to do on your time, and a lot of this is the clock. So, because there's a clock involved, you kind of a little more focused on the game itself than I have been when I've played 40k. So 40k, it's a lot of sitting there, and the way that the game attempts to engage you as the player is you're going to have an opportunity to save your guy's life by rolling dice on saves for a bulk of the, the hits that your opponent are going to get against you. So the way that 40k solves the problem is it gets you rolling dice during your opponent's turn. And so they're going to roll a whole bunch of stuff against you, and then you're going to try and make a whole bunch of saves. Maybe, you're, maybe your guy gets to be a big hero, and he, he makes some saves that he, he shouldn't have made, or, or they make some saves that they shouldn't have made. And it, it really creates this kind of interesting back and forth uh, for you as a player. At least that's the intention of the rule set. It doesn't always work out that way. In a lot of cases, it's just a, a, a spot for you or I'm going to talk for me. I'm going to talk for myself. In a lot of cases, you would get a cool cinematic moment where you're rolling a bunch of dice, and your guy gets to be a hero. The from an opponent's standpoint, that just is a, a spot where you get very frustrated because statistically that guy should have been gone and he's not. And 
it can create a little bit of tension within the game if you're playing it at a very serious level. If you're playing it as intended, as more of a beer and pretzels game, it's not a problem. But if you're if you're trying to play a, a more competitive style game, uh, this is where the rule set kind of lets you down a little bit because it gives you this sense that you do have some control over it when you really don't. You're just going to roll some dice and your opponent's chance of beating you is going to be reduced by that, by those chances, and sometimes you get some lucky spikes. And luck is always going to be a factor in, in any game. Uh, I am not the biggest fan of I go, you go, with the saves being on uh, saves being integrated into the game. Uh, I much prefer what War Machine does, which is you're going to do what you're going to do to my guys. I can set a number essentially by positioning, those type of things. For the most part, I'm not going to be rolling dice on your turn. Uh, there are some rules where that comes in, uh, like Tough. Uh, but Tough is, is kind of a special rule where you can keep a guy alive. It is, a, it, is a, it is an active save, but it's not a rule that everything has. Uh, you know, This is a special rule that costs points. Uh, in most instances, and is part of why you bring these units. For the most part, there is an expectation that things in your army are going to die, and I think that actually helps the I-go-you-go nature of the game uh, quite a bit, because it helps to bring about resolution to combat. And the best thing that you want in an I-go-you-go situation is fast resolution of combat. Uh, and the reason you want that is that allows you to see what has happened to your army, assess, and start to plan around it. When it takes longer for combat to resolve and you're having to actively do things on in your opponent's turn, it means you don't have time to really think about things on your turn. You're going to sit there and roll dice and you're going to have to figure out you know, what saved, what didn't, you're going to have to count all that. And then uh, your opponent's going to go on to the next thing, and you're going to do that again. Where in War Machine, you don't have to do that. Now, what is interesting about I Go, You Go as a mechanic is that it lets you really feel like a battlefield commander. It's like you've sent your orders, and now you're seeing those orders play out on the table and your opponent is then going to play out their orders and react to it after your orders have gone or based on the initiative that was that was rolled as, as part of the game or however the rules in your particular system work. And so you get this kind of grandiose feel when you have an I go you go mechanic. Doesn't mean it's bad. Where my sensibility comes in and where a lot of modern design has gone is it recognizes that having your opponent play out their grand strategy with the potential to have some lucky breaks, some lucky spikes, and remove a good portion of your army without you ever having a chance to do something or without you having the ability to then really retaliate against them and not having played a game, it has brought uh, back into the forefront alternating activations, which 
one of the oldest war games in existence, chess, actually utilizes, and Go utilizes this as well. Again, one of the other oldest war games in existence from the, uh, the other side of the world in China. Uh, China and Korea, uh, Japan, in the Asian tradition, Go is an alternating activation war game where it's all about placing these, uh, these clay tokens on, on a board and surrounding your opponent. But the, the whole point is that in both of these instances, in chess and in Go, two of the most strategic games in the, in the world and recognize as such, they understand that you shouldn't be able to activate the entirety of your army without your opponent having the ability to immediately react to you. And this is where modern game design has kind of taken its cues and has gone this route. Um, you saw this with uh, Malifaux, you see this in Guild Ball, and then, of course, you see this in the other side, which utilizes alternating activation with the additional mechanic of a coordinated strike to give you that little bit of a feel of a grander army that you're commanding, the ability to, to kind of activate two units one after the one after another in a coordination that lets you get a bit of that grandiose feel without creating crippling alphas for your opponent uh, in most instances. So that's a mechanic I really, really like. Um, alternating activations, why it's a bit more of a modern design is it means your opponent doesn't have to wait long to do something, to get you back for something good that you did. There's more of a back and forth. There's more of a duel to it. So one of the things that's kind of interesting around modern design is modern design has taken a lot of cues from card games. Uh, the mother of all strategic card games, uh, and we're not going to talk about Bridge, we're going to talk about Magic the Gathering because we're nerds. With Magic the Gathering, you have this sense of immediacy where you get to play out certain things on your turn, and then your opponent gets to respond to those things. In fact, they can respond during your turn if they've left their mana up. So there's very much this sense of a duel between wizards. In the same way, when you have an alternating activation miniatures game, as opposed to an I-go-you-go system, you get that much more immediate sense. You get more of the sense that you two are indeed two, uh, two strategists, two generals, locking horns uh, directly against each other and affecting each other's battle plan. As the game plays out, there's much more of a dual sense to it. So because you have a greater immediacy of vengeance, there is less pain if something is removed quickly. doesn't mean there's not pain, but it does mean you can immediately retaliate. You get that ability to create vengeance nearly immediately. And that immediacy of revenge... I think is a, is a great accommodation for players because it means that they're not going to get bored. They're not sitting there watching their army disintegrate in front of them without anything they can do until it's their turn, and then they're going to go ahead and let their opponent feel hopefully the same thing they just felt is they removed 
buckets and buckets of models from the table, whereas an alternating activation game, yeah, sure, things are going to get removed during this activation, but it's not going to be the entirety of an army. It's, there's just not enough volume of attacks that are going to be generated in that single activation that are going to remove the entirety of an army. It could remove a key piece, but then you're going to be able to do your retaliation against them. You're going to be able to make your counter move to what they just did. Now, with alternating activations comes a few things that we need to consider as designers. And this, these are things that were taken into account in the other side as well. And that is, if we have alternating activations, if I have more of activations than my opponent, I essentially can waste activations and then get to do lots of activations with my opponent not having any retaliation against me. And while this is technically true, you have outs in the other side. You have the ability to use some of your resources to stretch your activations. You can, you can utilize a pass system. And the pass system, I think, is utterly phenomenal. I think it solves uh, one of the key issues with alternating activations, which is, of course, the, act which is, of course, the activation um, conundrum when you, when you are out-activating your opponent. And the pass allows you to be strategic in both your build as well as your execution of your models, or the execution of your units. And of course, furthermore, there is incentive to be the first one to stop activating, because that means you are going to get first activation on the following turn. And sometimes that can be critical for the operation and ultimately winning the game. So I am a huge personal fan of, of alternating activations. Uh, I think it is, for most games going forward, I think it's the correct way to go. All of that said, I don't think I Go, You Go is inherently bad. I do think there are things that you have to consider in your design if you are going I Go, You Go that you simply don't have to if you use alternating activation. <coughs> and the main things that you have to consider when you're using I Go, You Go is... What is my expectation for engaging the player who is not activating during this time? How do I make them feel like they have agency? How do I make them feel like their decisions are mattering during this time? And how do I prevent large-scale alpha from ruining the player who did not get to activate first chance of winning the game. Do I prevent it through distance mitigation of threat? Do I mitigate it through some additional special rules or lowering of lowering of ranges? Do I mitigate it through advanced reinforcement rules? How do I prevent the alpha from determining the game? And how do I make combat resolve in a satisfying manner that isn't a drain to the player that is not in control of the action? And I think there's some clever ways to solve this. I think uh, Age of Sigmar actually solves this, especially in second edition, solves this fairly well in that the player will initiate 
the player that's activating will initiate combat, but the subsequent combats that are part of that initiation once it started up actually alternate between the two to pick who or which part of the line is is fighting after after the next and they switch who gets to roll dice first and this i think is a good change uh, and a solid change in the i go you go model uh, where it can make i go you go a little more tolerable uh, and a little less boring for the person on the other side of the table while they're waiting to to do their thing and so I think there's ways to do I go, you go, right? I just personally prefer alternating activations, and I'm very glad that uh, the other side chose to do alternating activations. So one of the other trends uh, that I want to talk about a little bit that has sort of rapidly changed over the last 30 years of gaming. So one of the other big trends uh, that I've kind of been seeing, move, be, being see, have seen, tried several times, uh, executed well a few, and really now starting to become a little more commonplace, is the idea of easy-to-build starters, or in some cases, uh, such as the other side, miniatures uh, where the assembly is already complete for you as a player. You just have to get into the game and, and play or, or spend a few moments to put them on bases, uh, such as the case on the other side. But even GW's starter product is pretty easy to assemble. Uh, in fact, they have an entire line uh, of models that they call easy to build that are typically from the starters uh, or are in the same vein as the starter sets to allow people to build the models more rapidly. They have fewer pieces, fewer customizations, uh, but they're much quicker to assemble. Um, even War Machine has... Uh, done what it can to reduce piece count on a lot of its models, uh, even for some of the newer factions So that it's been putting out recently. And so I think there's a trend overall, and again, bringing more people into the hobby by understanding that not everyone is a grand champion hobbyist that has uh, a ton of time to build these, that has an understanding of how to build these, or has a desire to spend... Uh, several days, weeks, or months to build up their force literally before playing the game and, and investing a lot of time before ever moving models on the table uh, is quite a big ask. And it's something that is a barrier for a lot of people to get into the hobby, especially when you consider again, uh, and I'm going to go back to the card game example, that for in a card game, you can just pick up the cards that you want and you can start playing. And... There's nothing that you have to do other than learn the rules and shuffle the deck. Uh, and whereas in a miniatures game, the expectation is you learn the rules, you build your models, you paint your models, uh, if you're being really st really sticky, and then uh, you know you get them on the table and, and you play. And this is a whole process that you've had to go on through before you ever get to play the game that you've spent money to play. And while some assembly, totally fine with, uh, I've, I've played games a very long time. I'm, I'm in the 20-year category of Wargamer. So with that being said, when I came into it, I was a young kid. I assembled some stuff, and I played a few Starter Box games with my brother. Now remember, GW Starter Boxes at the time were a squad of... Space Marines, and a squad of Tyranids. 
So not exactly the, the most in-depth models, but even those that many years ago were basically two to three piece models. They weren't, they weren't as detailed as the actual kits that you'll buy uh, afterwards. And I put those together and I painted them. I was very excited to do so. It took me a long time. It took me like a week. And then we played a few games. And then, um, you know, we, we were we were good playing a few, playing through the missions. We played through that, that box set a, a whole bunch of times. And then I wanted to get more stuff. And I went and I got a whole bunch of stuff. And then, as you do, it got to sit in boxes for weeks and weeks and months on end until I finally got some time and, and built a little bit more and built a little bit more and built a little bit more. And lo and behold, it wasn't until I moved to Texas that uh, I had, you know, it, I had moved to Texas and it was about four years into being a miniature, a GW Miniatures Games hobbyist, that I had assembled enough, purchased enough to actually play a tournament legal 1500 point game. And the standard in Texas, at the area that I was playing in the time, was 2,000 points. So I still had to buy and build more. And that was a little bit disheartening as a player. And I always have a love for my GW Army because it took me forever to build. It took me even longer to paint. And I was able to make it my own, which is there's a lot to be said for the customization and the joy that comes from the customization. So I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. But... I will say I very much appreciate when things are much easier to assemble than when they aren't and when you can get things on the table rapidly and start playing because when somebody's excited about playing a miniatures game, the worst thing in the world is to have them become unexcited because they now have a whole, bunch, whole pile of stuff that they can't play with and what they were excited about was playing the game. And I love the fact that a lot of the starter products that are coming out for games are easy to assemble or pre-assembled. I love even more that the other side has gone fully pre-assembled. And I know there's some people that love the fact that they can build all their stuff, and there are other people that don't. Um, Guild Ball is kind of interesting, because when I first got into Guild Ball, all of their stuff was metal model, you assembled it yourself. It was a few pieces in, in most cases, but you assembled everything. And now, uh, as they've continued to expand their line, they have gone more of the route of pre-assembled models. And I like this. I like this a lot. It'll, it allows you, as a player, to grab the box, get it on the table, start playing. And then you can paint it as you go. And I think... Getting the time that it takes you to get it to the table is instrumental in how often you are going to play a particular game. I think the lower time you have to get it to the table, the more quickly you're going to get to that game and the more quickly you're going to play that game and enjoy that game. I think there are a lot of people also that do truly enjoy the hobby aspects of the game, and I don't want to diminish that. And I think that it's important to have both available to you as a hobbyist. I, I There are some times I like to build stuff, and there are other times that I don't. And when I'm going to be playing a large-scale army game, I don't want to assemble things. 
if I'm going to be playing a tactical skirmish game, if I'm playing a, a game with a smaller model count overall, I don't mind assembling things and making them look really cool and really pretty and kind of customizing them. I do have a, a problem doing that when I have, you know, 30 or 40 or 50 guys that I got to get through. It's not fun to build that army. Um, I'd much rather be able to pull that army out of a box, start playing it, and then paint it as I go. Uh, which is why the other side just fits for me so well in that design choice. Um, additionally, with something like Guild Ball, I like the fact that I can just go and pick up a, a new guild off the shelf, and I don't have to worry about it. I can just chuck it in my bag and, and be ready to go, and then again paint it as, as I want to go along. So it gives me an opportunity to be able to play more games because I don't have to invest my limited hobby time in building everything, I can be I can play and support multiple game systems because some of these other game systems, because they have not uh, chosen to have a build aspect to their to their hobby portion outside of basing. I I just have to find time to paint them. I don't have to also allocate time to build them, and because of that, it lets me play more games. And that is always a good thing. I wish I had more game time, but it does allow me to play a multitude of systems and enjoy them. And so that is a trend that I really like in gaming. And that's a trend that I think more companies need to start embracing is this idea that the first time a player touches your product is some of the most important time in that particular player's life. Because it is going to determine whether that box sits on their shelf for months or whether they can get to the store while they're still excited about it and play that game. Because they didn't have to figure out how to build this stuff. And they didn't have to take a lot of time to do it. They could get it together very rapidly. They could get it together after they made their purchase. You know, with or without somebody's help. And I think GW has embraced this quite a bit. If you look at any of their Shadespire um box sets they're that game again phenomenal game alternating activations by the way again win uh overall i think that fits that game perfectly a good trend for G for gw and another trend which is a lot of companies are going smaller in their intro products uh, or or in games that are supplemental to their other games they are going with uh, more of a skirmish style game, and I think that's a good trend. But those models are hyper easy to assemble. They're two to three pieces. They are essentially snap fit. You don't even need glue in most of the instances for that product, and you are able to get going and playing very rapidly. It has sort of that same appeal and feel of a card game. You can get your stuff, you're ready to go, and you can play your game and that is exciting that means more people can get into this get into these games they can play them and they can start getting interested in other games that are in that wheelhouse maybe they find they really like painting models well they might also enjoy the fact that they could build some models and there are products that support that across multiple different lines and that to me is something that is cool exciting and very useful, and I'm glad that it's sort of a trend in gaming is that we're seeing more accommodation around the hobby portion of either removing uh, a bit of it with the building, 
and just having just having put on bases with things like the other side, with things like Guild Ball. Uh, I'm sure there's some other companies that I'm not thinking about at the moment um, that I'm not giving proper due. But again, this isn't meant to be extensive. This is just meant to give kind of overviews and, and mostly from my perspective as to the, the changing in trends of the hobby. And so I think this is a good trend. The, the trend of easy accessibility to the game by way of having pre-assembled models or limited assembly models where you don't have to do a, a ton to get them on the table. And again, I, I am a believer that the quicker we can get things onto the table, uh, the quicker we can get people playing, and playing creates engagement in the game. Uh, there are There's arguments that hobby also creates engagement for the game. I would say yes, it does, but in a different way. Uh, it engages you in the hobby of miniatures building. It doesn't engage you in the game. Uh, and to me, the game is often the most important piece. The hobby is what you do when the game is not available to you. Uh, if the game is available to you, you're not hobbying. You're going to be playing your game, uh, which involves more than just showing off your cool miniatures to somebody else. It involves the strategies and tactics of playing the actual game. And I think, again, a lot of games do this incredibly well. I think the other side does it about the best because, again, all you've got to do to play is get these models on the base. Very, very quick, very, very simple, and you're good to go. Um, so I think that is a good trend. I think that's something I'd like to see continued and, and expanded for other game systems is ways to make at least your starting products more accessible to players and accessible in a way where they're not having to spend an inordinate amount of hobby time to get these models on the table. You know, reduce your cuts if you're going to have cuts. Um, increase your ability to do push fit model uh, if you can or snap tight model on some of these sculpts. You know, it's, it's a spot where you could invest in that and then get these players interested in your product, get them hooked, get them playing the game, and then if a player loves the game and loves what they're doing, they will overcome um, whatever hobby obstacle you put in front of them for the most part if they know the rules are good. They don't know the rules are good until they really start playing, and they can't get invested in playing if they have to sit there and build your models. So that's just that's just my two cents on it. Um, I hope you enjoyed this little diversion into uh, talking about sort of the, the trending and history of miniatures games. Uh, I hope it, it contextualized the other side for you is, to me, one of the best modern examples of game design uh, ever. Um, I'd like to do another one of these in the future. Uh, this is not. This is obviously not our standard format for the show, or and it will not be going forward. Uh, we will get back to your regularly scheduled other side talk uh, on our next episode, uh, going back into a little bit of a unit deep dive, uh, or we may, uh, if I get a little crazy, we may talk a little bit more of strategy and tactics around the early game. Uh, but until next time, I want to make sure you remember if you have a tactics token, you can make a coordinated strike. <laughs>